Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. I just want to apologize in advance for the quality of the sound due to the quarantine that is currently going on. A bunch of my gear is kind of scattered to various places, and I have recently returned from abroad and thus have been locked in a building for almost 14 days. So I'm having to make do with what I got. Hope you still enjoy, though. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. When one thinks of slavery in North America, one is automatically drawn to the horrific institution that dominated the southern United States for so long. But because of the immense amount of scholarship and media devoted to that very institution that started a war, the experience of black subjects of the British Empire and the black communities in what became Canada is often overlooked. Slavery in Canada is often completely overlooked or totally disregarded in most of the literature. Many people don't even know that slavery existed in this country, but it did. And this country has had a long and complicated relationship with slavery, escaped slaves, and free black citizens. Today, we explore how that complexity played out within a single regiment during a single war. This is Season 5, Episode 15, The Colored Corps and the War of 1812. Today's book recommendations are, firstly, J. McKay Hitzman's The Incredible War of 1812. This book came out in 1999 and is probably one of the best all-encompassing books on the story of the War of 1812, written from a very balanced perspective from both the British-Canadian side and the American side. But also I want to recommend a book by David and Peter Myler, and it's called Searching for Richard Pierpoint, 
A Stolen Life. This came out in 1999 as well from Natural Heritage Books. And this book is excellent. It's about one man's experience being a black British North American at the turn of the century when the sort of American Revolution had just wrapped up and leading into the War of 1812. And he was kind of there for everything. It's an excellent tale, an excellent story about a person's experience during this formative time in our country's history. Okay, so to understand the story of the Colored Corps in the Canadas during the War of 1812, we have to first understand the complicated situation of slavery in the Canadas. Great Britain first banned slavery within the British Isles in 1772, yet slavery remained legal throughout the empire. In 1783, Britain lost all 13 of her colonies along the Atlantic seaboard in what would become known as, of course, the United States of America during the American War of Independence. Thus, the British holdings in North America, known as British North America, became a haven for those loyalists seeking to flee the American Republic and continue living under the British crown and within the British Empire. In order to induce and motivate more loyalists, as they were called, to flood northwards into British North America, the British declared that any slave owner coming north could keep his slaves without any taxation or penalty. Thus, while in Great Britain herself, slavery was illegal, by the end of the 1780s, slavery was certainly legal and practiced in all corners of British North America. It was an odd period, whereby there were thousands of free blacks living and even working alongside slaves. In Upper Canada, in 1793, Lieutenant Governor John Simcoe passed the Act to Limit Slavery. This was the only act attempting to limit slavery passed in all of the British Empire. This was intended to stamp out slavery within the colony of Upper Canada over a lengthy period. It declared that any slaves currently in the colony were to remain as slaves. However, no new slaves could be imported into the colony. As well, any children born to slaves were to be set free by the age of 25. You see, Simcoe was an abolitionist but was also concerned about alienating the influential slaveholders within Upper Canada. Thus, his act to limit slavery was meant to be a compromise between the abolitionists and the slave owners, slowly doing away with the institution over a long period of time. For a larger discussion of slavery, folks, check out Season 3, Episode 16, Chloe Cooley and Slavery in the Canadas. This goes into a lot more detail about this institution in British North America. What is quite fascinating is that during this period that Simcoe has passed this act to limit slavery, many slaves in Upper Canada sought freedom by escaping to the numerous free states 
in the northern United States, such as Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, where slavery was completely abolished. It gets a bit more strange when we realize and learn that those who were slaves in the United States sought to find freedom in Upper Canada. Because, of course, under Simcoe's new Act to Limit Slavery, no new slaves could be brought into the Canadian colony. So we have a very strange situation in the 1780s and 90s. We have slaves in the United States escaping northwards to Upper Canada to find freedom, while at the very same time, slaves in Upper Canada are escaping southwards to the free states of the northern U.S. to find freedom. As well, on both sides of the border, there are growing communities of free black citizens. This was the complicated situation on the eve of the War of 1812. So, the War of 1812 began with the American Declaration of War against Britain in June of 1812. The Declaration itself was a product of a growing list of grievances between the new republic and its old imperial master. When war was declared, Britain was deeply enmeshed in an ongoing struggle against Napoleonic France, and thus... From day one, North America was basically a sideshow for the British. Many in the Canadas figured that an all-out American invasion simply could not be stopped. Much of this rested on the fact that the defenses of British North America were deemed to be wholly inadequate in terms of defending against a numerically superior force like the American army. While British North America did have small numbers of British regulars who were considered some of the best infantry on the planet at this time, the backbone of the colonial defense was intended to come from the militia. Essentially, the militia was a non-professional, partially trained civilian force who were expected to serve in the British North American Defense Force in response to any sort of American attack. Now, some of the militia were fairly well-trained and fairly well-equipped, while most of the militia were not. In fact, while on paper the militia of British North America was quite large, the majority of civilians often failed to show up when called upon. And even when they did, they were only willing to serve for brief periods in direct response to foreign threats. Simply put, the militia was unreliable, and while some militia units would serve in the war with distinction, many simply melted away at the first sign of trouble or even bad weather. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
On the eve of the war, there were somewhere around 700 to 800 black slaves in Upper Canada, with around 200 to 300 free blacks also living in the colony. Now, while the free black population enjoyed all the rights due to a subject of the British Empire, there was no question that they were considered socially inferior by the white population and often treated as second-class subjects. Nonetheless, in terms of rights and legal protection, black British North Americans were often better off than those living in the free states of the United States. One of the more prominent black persons in Upper Canada in 1812 was Richard Pierpoint. Pierpoint was born in Africa, in what is now Senegal, and was brought over to North America as a slave, in fact owned by a British officer. During the American Revolution, Pierpoint actually fought in the famous regiment known as Butler's Rangers. This was a unit within the Loyalist military that often utilized unconventional tactics in fighting the American rebels. When the war ended, Pierpoint was freed, and he moved to Upper Canada. In Upper Canada, he settled near Niagara, close to present-day St. Catharines. When the War of 1812 broke out, Pierpoint offered to raise a free black regiment on behalf of Upper Canada, but he was denied. Now, it should be mentioned that free blacks served throughout the Upper Canadian militia, with the limited numbers of people in the colony generally speaking, segregation simply was never a practical measure. Yet, Pierpoint was not only black, but he was also a manual laborer, a job deemed low class by British Victorian standards, and combined, he simply was not the quote-unquote officer type that fit within British military standards of the day. Thus, he was not given the opportunity to raise and lead a regiment of his own. Yet, as the summer progressed and the response of the various upper Canadian militias to the call to arms was scattered and inconsistent at best, permission was finally given for an all-black regiment to be raised. However, and this probably comes as no surprise considering the racial predilections of the British Empire of the day, command was given to a local white tavern keeper who held a captain's commission in the current Upper Canadian Militia. Pierpoint was not to be dismayed, though, and he, in fact, enlisted as a private. The Coloured Corps, as it would come to be called, would number 38 men at its full strength, hardly a regiment. Interestingly, though, it would be a mix of free blacks and slaves. One soldier, named Jack, was the property of a slaveholder near Grimsby, Ontario. Another soldier, named Prince Henry, was the property of Upper Canada's provincial secretary, William Jarvis. Whether these men enlisted to earn their freedom, or were sent by their owners, or were even escaped slaves seeking refuge, is difficult to tell. Folks, I just want to take a minute before we continue to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. 
If you go to our Facebook page or to our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate two bucks per every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. You can go to www.patreon.com, so P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash history. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and Apple Podcasts and Spotify, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy, and thank you to everyone who has donated. We could not keep doing this without you. And now back to the regularly scheduled program. Throughout the rest of the summer and into the early autumn, the unit trained at Fort George on the Niagara Peninsula. On the 13th of October, 1812, the Corps saw its first action at the Battle of Queenston Heights, when several thousand American soldiers crossed from the town of Lewiston on the eastern bank of the Niagara River, the American side, to attempt to capture the town of Queenston on the western bank of the river, the British-Canadian side. When the unit arrived on the battlefield, the British commander, Isaac Brock, had already been shot dead. The Colored Corps was placed alongside a First Nations force under John Norton, who was currently engaging the American enemy that held the all-important heights above the town of Queenston, the Queenston Heights for which the battle is named. The Corps, now in full battle line, met the Americans with a volley and then participated in the charge that forced the Americans into surrendering the heights. The battle ended shortly after, the Corps suffering no casualties. By the end of October, the men had moved back into winter quarters at Fort George. During that winter, however, they lost their first member, when Private John Jackson succumbed to disease. Remember, at this time, folks, disease was a far greater killer of men than participation on the battlefield. Winter depleted the ranks by another seven, and only 30 men were able to muster when spring came in 1813. Nonetheless, the winter had allowed the unit to continually train, and this training led to it adopting the designation of an quote-unquote embodied militia unit, effectively meaning it was fit for general service and could be relied upon in any operation. This is juxtaposed with what was known as sedentary militia, which were often missing equipment and lacking significant training and thus could rarely be relied upon without ample time improving first. In fact, it is in April when the unit was given the designation of the Colored or Black Corps as part of the muster rolls for the Upper Canadian Militia, basically meaning this was now a single contained unit recognized within the lists of all the units of the Upper Canadian Militia. In late May 1813, the men of the Corps would be tested once again. 
when an American force attempted to capture Fort George. The men of the Corps engaged in volley fire with the American attackers for 15 minutes before being forced back to the walls of the fort due to naval cannon fire from American vessels supporting the assault. After a 24-hour siege, the fort was abandoned to the Americans, and the Anglo-Canadian defenders retreated westwards to the heights near Burlington in modern-day Hamilton, Ontario. However, what was intended to be a respite from enemy attack turned into a battle with the elements, as the retreating Anglo-Canadian force lacked tents, blankets, shoes, and had to deal with constant rain and exposure to the weather. In early June, the Anglo-Canadian force attacked the Americans at Stony Creek, yet there was little evidence to suggest the Corps actually participated in this attack. Most evidence, in fact, suggests the Corps was left behind to protect the Anglo-American baggage train while a force went out to meet the Americans. The summer of 1813 is one of the low points for the Anglo-Canadian defenders of Upper Canada, as the Americans enjoyed a series of successes throughout the colony. Desertions spiked, and even the Corps was not immune, losing four men to desertion by mid-June 1813. The remainder of the summer and early autumn passed relatively uneventful, until December of that year, when the Americans actually withdrew from Fort George and the Corps once again found itself reoccupying its old positions. In January of 1814, the Corps would undergo a shift from a combat force to a labor unit. All throughout the colony, defensive infrastructure was in dire need of repair and rebuilding, and yet the colony was struggling to enlist laborers to help. Locals were difficult to enlist due to the low pay being offered, and even militia units would find excuses to desert when stuck working too long on infrastructure projects. By the spring of 1814, Upper Canadian officials thus decided that the Colored Corps would now revert to under the command of the Colonial Engineer Department. It is difficult to discern whether this was a decision based on race or the relative disciplined nature of the Corps. It was widely understood by that time that the Corps was fairly well organized, well disciplined, and would listen to orders, meaning it would do the work it was being told to do. But one has to think that it is a combination of this fact coupled with the racial nature of the unit itself. Regardless, by March 1814, the Corps was engaged in the construction of a new key defensive position at the mouth of the Niagara River, closer to the shores of Lake Ontario than Fort George. This position, deemed Fort Mississauga, would now be the key to holding back American amphibious movements into the Niagara River. Today, the fort is located in the town of Niagara-on-the-Lake, right along Mississauga Beach. The fort was only halfway completed in mid-July 1814 when the Americans launched a diversionary attack against the position, but this was repulsed by the defensive force of British regulars and Canadian militia stationed there. Construction continued. 
By the end of the summer, it was obvious that Fort Mississauga was going to be a key strategic position for the Anglo-Canadian defense of Upper Canada, with its control of the river entrance and access to the Great Lake. In fact, by the autumn of 1814, wives and children of the soldiers, including the Colored Corps, had moved into the fort, creating a semi-permanent community at this new, strategically important location. While fighting continued on throughout 1814, there is little evidence to suggest the Corps participated in any of the major actions. Some unreliable sources indicate the Corps fought at the key Battle of Lundy's Lane in July 1814, but most historians consider this unlikely. Even when the Anglo-Canadians assaulted Fort Erie, south of Fort Mississauga, to push the Americans off of Canadian soil, the Corps remained in Fort Mississauga. This can be read in two ways. Firstly, the importance of the Corps in continually improving the fort's defenses meant they could not be released to action anywhere else, despite the fact that there were, in fact, requests for engineers to help in the attack on Fort Erie. The second way to read this is once again in the racial component, that due to their race, they were not deemed suitable for combat. Yet, this would fly in the face of the fact that the Corps had proven itself in combat earlier in the war. Once again, the likely answer is a combination of both the disciplined nature of the Corps as a labor unit and the racial component. By early 1815, the fort had been completed, and the Corps was given a written commendation for its impressive work on the position. The fort would actually never truly be tested, for in early March 1815, word of peace arrived at Fort Mississauga, and by the end of the month, the Corps was disbanded. The war was over for the Colored Corps. Sadly, civilian life was to see the Corps and its members treated quite poorly by the upper Canadian government. Due to a series of bureaucratic errors, coupled with an overall lack of urgency on behalf of the paymasters, the Corps was not granted its gratuity of six months' pay for its service. This was a gratuity given to almost all the other militia units that were serving in the Upper Canadian Defensive Force. Now, veterans of the Corps were able to successfully argue their case, though it would be another two years before all the members received their due. As well, in 1819, when veterans of the War of 1812 were given land grants for their service, the men of the Colored Corps received only half of what their white counterparts got. When they challenged this, it took another year before it was finally settled in their favor. So there's obviously a consistent pattern of the government ignoring the black veterans of the defensive force of Upper Canada. By the early 1820s, when the land was finally handed over, a number of the veterans had already passed away, spending their remaining years eking out a meager existence, waiting on land grants to come through. Richard Pierpoint was one of these men. By 1815, Pierpoint was in his early 70s which is incredible considering his age never prevented him from completing his service. 
But it, what it did mean is that land grants for Richard meant back-breaking work clearing the land, back-breaking work his body could no longer do. Even though he was given land, his age and physical deterioration had resulted in him being unable to truly make anything of it. His continued dream, in fact, through all of this, was to try to return to his home in Africa. And he petitioned the government regularly to allow him to do this through government financial support. Basically, instead of land, pay for his return trip home. The government demurred. Pierpoint passed away sometime in 1837 or 1838, a penniless transient and veteran of two British wars, never able to complete his dream of seeing his home. Pierpoint and the Colored Corps are good examples of the complex nature of race relations within the British Empire as they entered the 19th century. Slowly moving towards the complete abolition of slavery, while still holding deeply embedded racist views, while never hesitating to call on its non-white subjects to do their part for the defense of the British Empire. An empire very reluctant to grant rights and privileges to those who heeded the call for king and country. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.